Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you're about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The First 2,000 Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Now, if you'll stay right aboard with me today, I'm going to move right along through this last material to make sure that um, uh, we got all the highlights. Then I'll review a little bit of the early part if there's time, but it might take us most of the lesson to finish it out here. I think one of the most exciting things about the, the period after the flood is the fact that Noah and his son Shem should have lived long enough to see ten generations of their descendants in the earth dying off in due time and uh, uh, being replaced. But nevertheless, these two fine old patriarchs just went on and on with um, Noah not dying until his tenth descendant, who was Abraham, was 28 years of age. If we have the dates right on Abraham, all of the dates from the creation down to Abraham are on target. Beginning with Abraham, there's a possibility that it may be a little off because it gives all three of Terah's sons uh, as of the time he was 70. And apparently that's the time when he began having his sons. So I arbitrarily put it up, put Abraham's birth up a little further and um, we, may, we think we're within three or four years. At the outside, it couldn't be more than 20 years off. When we get down to the Book of Mormon period, then we're on target again. Once we hit 600, we're right on. No problem. And that comes right on down. But between Abraham and Jeremiah, we have to guess. But that's not too bad. And uh, as science is gradually finding through archaeological research, actual monuments which fix the date of kings mentioned in the Bible and gives figures and dates uh, we find that our guesses aren't too bad. But the first 2,000 years chronology is quite different than almost anything you'll find in most of your Bibles. Because most of your Bibles are built on Usher, and that was done several hundred years ago. And so that, that's way off compared to our most recent data. So what I did when I wrote the 1,000 years series was to give the very latest that both science and scripture has been able to give you. So, um, who do we associate with 2000 B.C.? How about uh, 1900? How about 1800? How about um, the flood? 2344, that's the spirit. And um, how about Enoch? 34, 3500 B.C., right in there. Okay, he, he, they, they lived so long you could almost just put your finger out there in the dark and hit one of their centuries. <clears throat> How about Moses? You haven't kind of memorized that yet, have you? Okay, I'd kind of work on that in due time. Okay. 
Now, Abraham was born in the Chaldees, and it was in the area not far from where the Tower of Babel had been built and destroyed. In the confusion of tongues, his people had remained in the uh, approximate vicinity. A lot of the people had gone up into Eurasia, over onto the Indus in India, uh, over onto the Yellow River in China. Uh, the Jaredites were in America. But some of the Shemites, or Semitic peoples, the word Semitic comes from Shemites, they stayed right around Chaldea in this area right here. All of them down here. And um, he says that as he grew up, he found that his father was sacrificing his brothers and sisters in human sacrifices, that his father was a very wicked person and was violating the commandments of Father Noah and great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Shem. <clears throat> and so he wanted to have the priesthood, he said, and he couldn't get it from his own father, so he aspired to have it and he got it. And it doesn't say in the writings of Abraham who gave it to him. It's in the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants and who ordained him? Melchizedek, clear over in Salem or Jerusalem of today. How many thousand feet above sea level? At Jerusalem? You need to know this so you'll take your coat when you go with me on tour. It's 3,000 feet above sea level at Jerusalem. And it comes up fast, you see, in about, uh, oh, about 25 miles. You see, you just go right up. And then you go way down to uh, 1,500 feet below sea level, 1,300 feet below sea level to the Dead Sea on the other side in 16 miles. Oh, that's, that's sensational country. And no matter how much I tell you about it, you'll still be shocked and surprised when you see it. So somehow in his early youth, either Melchizedek was going east to see Father Noah and Shem, or else this young fellow came out and he got the priesthood. And it was the higher priesthood. And you notice what he says. I wanted to be called um, uh, a prince of peace. Did you notice that? Okay, now that's the name that belonged to who? To Melchizedek. And what was, the city, what his, what was his city named? Uh, Salem, which means what? Yeah, it means peace. Salem means peace. So his people were, uh, Melchizedek's people were about to be annihilated. They were surrounded by the Hamitic tribes here, and they were about to get involved in war and destruction, and Melchizedek said, the reason the Lord says it's going to happen is because you're so wicked. And so he went right after them and got them to repent, and he eventually refined them to the point that when, in about a hundred and... Um, um, 80 years, give or take a few decades, they were sufficiently refined so they could join the city of Enoch, and the whole city was translated, as had the city of Enoch been. Now, when the first 2,000 years came out, when people came to that material, instead of looking up the references, they would say, no, I've been in the church all my life. That just can't be true. That, no, 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 no. Melchizedek wasn't translated. He was a man without father, without mother. See, for Latter-day Saints to be that ignorant, uh, is is uh, a real tragedy and that was my generation they really didn't know all this information people just stopped talking about it everybody's so busy and we'd emphasize the word of wisdom and a few things but you get down into the wonderful sound marvelous foundation of history that God had revealed my generation didn't have it so people would say where'd you get that strange doctrine about Melchizedek being translated and I said oh the inspired version Oh, we don't read this inspired version. Yes, we do. The parts that Joseph Smith, we know he worked on, we, we work, we accept, we use. I don't know about that. So we had all kinds of educating to get people to get their minds where the early leaders of the church were. Their minds were just sparking out in every direction.
Well, a theory is the word because I'm not sure about e about the other concept, but it definitely was stated apocryphally. But uh, no suggestion as to where the city was taken from. Uh, there's a, a, a cleft in the crust of the earth that runs from Turkey clear down into Africa. The Dead Sea is the lowest part of it. And uh, that runs, you see, this is part of it. The Aqaba Gulf is part of it. And it goes clear on up through the Dead Sea and all up the Jordan River. And the Sea of Galilee, believe it or not, is below sea level. Right up in the tops of the mountains, below sea level. That really throws you. Uh, but it is. And that goes right on up through the um, Becca Valley and right on up into old Anatolia or, or Turkey. So that it was a tremendous area. Now, I've never heard anyone suggesting that possibility, but it's not impossible either. Now, when uh, Abraham uh, had the priesthood from Shem or Noah, he doesn't say from whom he got it, but he said, I got all the records from before the flood. Now, will you remember that? Because I often ask about it. I got all of the Adamic tongue records from before the flood. And how could he read them? Because, you see, he, he was a victim of the confusion of tongues. Uh, so how did he read them? How? Did he have the Urim and Thummim? That's great, isn't it? Yeah, he had the Urim and Thummim. All right, so he was able to translate. Then he began to prophesy about something terrible that was going to happen to the land. What did he prophesy? He preached to the people and told them they'd have to repent or what? Abraham. And Abraham uh, said to the people, you've got to repent or what? Don't you remember that? Famine. Terrible famine. And um, so the heathen priests decided that they had to do away with him. And who conspired with them to get him killed? His own father. And he says my, that um, his fathers were guilty of, ch of killing uh, their children. Uh, so this means his own brothers and sisters at some time had been slaughtered. And interestingly enough, he says in this priest in, of Pharaoh, uh, because they had these two cultures are very closely aligned. The heathen religion in Chaldea and the Egyptian religions were closely aligned. And the priest of Pharaoh had recently sacrificed a, an infant and three daughters, princesses, meaning direct descendants of Ham. Now, here are three Negro girls, and they were sacrificed, it says, because they wouldn't what? They wouldn't participate in the sex worship, the, the, the religious fertility cults. And because of their virtue, they were slain. Now, you see, if you, once you know about the fertility cults in the Old Testament days, that book begins to make sense. Otherwise, it will not make sense, and God will sound very cruel, irrational, and unreasonable in the way he treats people. But there was nothing more hateful to God than these fertility cults because he could have his saints going just fine and all of a sudden a fertility cult would spring up and all the gay blades uh, got themselves involved. And then they would involve the daughters of Zion and the next thing you know, the whole people would become corrupted. So <clears throat> the Lord really strikes out. There was a death penalty who introduced the fertility cults in, in Israel. Death penalty. I was just going to say, it sounds like going out some mountain west of the university and doing all this witchcraft, and it's a regular course in the university. For heaven's sakes. They probably give two hours credit, just like we do for religion. <laughs> <clears throat> you remember what Jesus said when he was giving his Sermon on the Mount? As in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Here we are. 
That's why the brethren are so anxious. That's why Brother Lee's talk was, I thought, so marvelous. He wants to keep us unified, stay close together, help one another. Uh, just avoid these uh, uh, forces and influences, uh, the milieu and environment that the Gentile world is, is building up. It formerly was on the terrestrial level. Now it's sinking clear down to the depths of the telestial. And uh, so, and it's your generation that Satan's after because this is the messianic generation. We're moving right into the end now. We've even got some of our saints say, don't talk that way. Uh, hey, we've been talking about the second coming and it never does come. No, don't talk about those things. Well, the Doctrine and Covenant said we'd have some Latter-day Saints that didn't want to talk about those things. Think he'd postponed his coming. And those are the ones that'll be left in the field, not caught up. And I don't want any of you to be left in the field. And I want to be with you when we go up. If I'm still around, if I'm not, I'll be up there reaching out. Uh, <coughs> now, at the time that he was offered for sacrifice, the technique for offering a human sacrifice is one that I described in your book. It simply was a question of binding the individual to the bedstead uh, type of altar, uh, made in the image of a lion, you know, and paws and so forth. And the, the knife went down, th went through the throat, down through the thoracic cavity without killing the person. It opened up the rib cage, and the rib cage was opened up, and the heart had to be beating when the priest pulled it from its roots. And then it was waved up before the god, and the blood spattered all over it. Just a terrible thing. And that was done by the Egyptians, although they deny it. When I take people on tour, and our folks will say, but did, did they ever have human sacrifice? Oh, no, we never had human sacrifice. No, 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 no. So I don't say anything. I just, we just go on. At night, I give them the lecture on human sacrifices. <laughs> the the uh, Aztecs were doing it. The Incas were doing it. They were doing it in the Far East. Everywhere, it was the same type of thing. Get that heart out. That was the sacrifice. So the knife is raised. The Pharaoh's priest is ready. And Abraham is praying. <laughs> And uh, he had one of those fast visions, a real, real quick one, that told him all kinds of things, real fast. And he got it all, and fine. And the angel said, now I'll take care of this fellow. And down came the altar. There was a terrible earthquake, smashed all the image, killed the priest. And, of course, Abraham went into hiding. And the terrible famine came, and his own brother Haran died. You think you can remember that name, Haran? H-A-R-A-N. And his brother... Uh, Heron died. Now he had one other brother. Uh, what was his name? What was it? Nehor. Nehor. Both are correct. The Bible spells it one way. I accept either one. And um, poor Heron, once he had died, he'd left three children. He'd left three children. A boy and two girls. What was the boy's name? Lot. Uh, what was one of the daughter's names? Sarah. Eventually Sarah. Sarai. And what was the other one? Milka. Milka. And, um, and so then the Lord uh, tells uh, Abraham to depart and go into a distant land and that he's going to be a promised land and to take Sarah with him. Now in those days, a grandfather, when his son died, would adopt the children of his dead son and these grandchildren would then become legally his own children. So did Sarah become the sister of Abraham, literally? 
In a technical sense, she became his sister. And later you'll have the Lord instructing him to emphasize that relationship rather than make a point of the fact that they're married so that he can get down there in Egypt long enough to at least preach to those uh, heathen Egyptians before they kill him. Because they had a custom in those days of, of uh, when they found a beautiful woman who was married, they made a widow out of her so she'd be available. Got to be legal about these things so they commit murder so she'll be available. Uh, so Abraham went, uh, who accompanied Abraham? Wasn't that unusual? Who, to, who went with him? And uh, yeah, the Lord said to take Lot and his wife, uh, but who else went along? Yeah, isn't that interesting? What was his name? Terah. Terah had to tag along. And he got up there to Haran and they were able to replenish their flocks. They brought some flocks with them, pretty skinny though after that famine. And in times of famine, it's kind of interesting, a very wealthy man would save his flocks if he possibly could because that represented the family wealth. Rather than eat them, you see, and even in a time of starvation, they would save some of their flocks because otherwise there was nothing to uh, work with for the survivors to use. So they had some flocks and they replenished them and he became very, Abraham became very rich up there. <clears throat> How old was he when um, he left Haran? 62. Now, uh, it's, this is a correction of the Bible. The Bible says 75. But in Abraham's own writings, he said, no, it was 62 when I left here and 75 when I arrived over in the Promised Land. That is when I came to stay there permanently. <clears throat> so he got ready to leave from Haran. Haran is uh, located on a river that's a tributary of the Euphrates, right up here. And he got ready to leave. Did his father now go with him? Why? He had returned to his idolatry, and he loved it. Now that they were prosperous, he loved it. Uh, he, yes, he had offered his children as sacrifices. The priests probably offered them up, but he, he allowed his children to be sacrificed. And the Greeks later on would offer up as many as uh, two and three hundred in connection with a particular battle that was very severe. When you go to Athens, they, they will say there are no human sacrifices, but they're, they're, it's true, they did have sacrifices. It was a terrible period of human slaughter, and the Lord just despised it. And when you hear the Lord wiping out a whole civilization like Jericho, he'd wipe out the whole city, men, women, and children. And that's why he would do it, because they'd been so corrupted that if one of their children survived, they'd grow up and reintroduce the uh, contamination. So he would just simply say to those, he'd say, call them to repentance. Try to get them to come under the higher law. And if they don't, and they resist you and try to destroy you, then you're to wipe them out as a people and send them back to the spirit world and start over again. So people have been horrified. They'd say, my goodness, a just loving God couldn't do that. A just loving God would do that. As a matter of fact, uh, when I read the history in its proper perspective, now I boil waiting for the Lord to take action. Finally he does and I feel so much better and I can go to sleep. And when you find out what they did to these children, roasting them alive and teaching them at um, four, five, and six years old to be homosexuals and actually training them in all kinds of perversions and, and sadism, etc., what they would do to the father's choice spirits just rankles your soul when you see it. Now he came down into this territory. <clears throat> as far as we can tell, he came down to Jabok River right here. This became the traditional site. When we go on tour, they tell us that he came down Becca Valley. These are the Lebanese mountains, and these are the anti-Lebanese, Damascus, capital of Syria, right there. And here are the famous heathen ruins right here. And they think that he came around and down this way, which he could have done. But all of the prophets, we find where, where they trace their pattern, they cut across, and they came down here, 
down to Jabok and then crossed over. So our tendency, because this used to be all wooded, it wasn't desert at all. Damascus now is in the middle of a desert, it didn't used to be. That was all wooded territory. So the likelihood is they used to come down here, then cross that Jabok River and go over into the mountains on the other side. That's where Jacob uh, will come and we think that Abraham did too. Why didn't he stay? Yes, Mike? Uh, the picture you see of the Holy Land mountain they are now. That's right. That's right. In fact, once a territory, and then pass it right on. Who hasn't seen the, the Ark picture? Then pass it down this side, if you will. Uh, in, fact, in fact, northern Africa, that's now the Sahara Desert, uh, they dig down in the sand and they find the ruins of what used to be a million population city. See, that used to be very lush, wonderful territory, and the Romans destroyed it, overgrazed it, and, uh, well, they just let it become neglected, and they got a desert out of it. Now, um, why didn't uh, Abraham stop in the Promised Land? He got there, and he offered up sacrifices um, at Bethel, meaning the house of God, Bethel. Uh, why didn't he stay there? Oh, there's a famine here now. So down he goes. And he gets down here to uh, th this territory right in here. He hasn't entered e Egypt yet, but he has left, and he's on the way. He's right here when this marvelous vision occurred, which gave us uh, the heart of the book of Abraham. And this is where the Lord appears before him and uh, lets him see all of the stars, all of our galaxy, I should say, right into the center where Kolob is. This is the only description we have in, the, in, the Bible, in, in any of the scriptures which tells us why the ancients knew so much about astronomy and mathematics. Um, Abraham was given the times, meaning the measurements, from the earth, moon, sun, and the sun goes around another sun, and that goes around another sun, and another sun, and it goes in about eight or ten steps that are actually listed by Abraham. Wheels within wheels going in toward the center of our galaxy, 30,000 light years away, and finally he gets to the big core, and that's Kolob. And it says, now that's nearest to the throne of God. Now does that mean the throne of God is spinning right around Kolob? When I was a boy, that's the way it was taught. We now know that what it means is that the center of our galaxy takes its strength from a greater core way up there, that a lot of galaxies are feeding off of a, even a higher center of light and power. And maybe another one. And anyway, the center of our galaxy is nearest, meaning it's, uh, um, as you go inward, that's the next connecting link to where God is. And his name is what? That's his title. His title is Elohim, which means chief of the gods. What's his name? Aman. The word man, M-A-N, is taken from your father. We are all the sons of man, or man. That's his name. That's his name. Okay. Now, when he saw this wonderful vision, the Lord told him that he was telling him all about these things. And not only that, but he, he gave him all of this insight about the building blocks of the universe. And what are the two eternal things out of which everything is made? Intelligence and matter, which we discussed a little earlier. And as Brigham Young says, the matter is capacitated to receive the intelligence, and then you can command it, and it can begin to organize itself. Um, 
in Abraham we have this expression of uh, one intelligence being above another or it will say one spirit above another because if this element is spirit element now keep in mind that both spirit and gross matter like this are actually the same thing on two different planes just like ice and water are, two are the same thing on two different planes everybody get that? so there are two levels of element now there's the spirit level let us say and it's it's capacitated to receive intelligence. Now, could we then say there's one spirit above another? In the same sense that we say what, there's one intelligence above another? And this is the way it's presented to us. Uh, so that, that doctrine the Prophet Joseph explained to the Quorum of the Twelve, but then didn't say what the doctrine was. He just said, I, I explained to the brethren the doctrine of graduated intelligence in the universe tonight. And they were very pleased to hear this doctrine had the apostles and their wives meet with me and didn't say what the doctrine was. So then I started digging at the suggestion of Apostle Woodso and he was my mission president and, and began getting it in the um, <clears throat> journals of discourses where on numerous occasions they had explained the doctrine but it had been lost from the church in my day so we got it back in the appendix as I've explained to you so that we'd be able to start all working on it again. Now science has come along and said it so it must be true you see. <clears throat> okay now the Lord said I'm revealing all of this information to you so that you might what that you might what teach it to whom to the Egyptians and every time I go down and look at those magnificent pyramids and the tremendous high precision engineering and skill that went into their struck construction and we know that the, this was about the time that they were built. We don't know the exact time, but we know about the time they were built. And it very, may very well have been about this time. In any event, he went down there, and because of the beauty of his wife, he was highly recommended to the Pharaoh. <coughs> and um, uh, the Pharaoh then took the wife of Abraham into his house to give her one year of preparation so she could be worthy to be his wife. Took a long time to get worthy and uh, assuming she was the sister. And this gave Abraham all this time, you see, to get all the word out. But man, what a trauma. Uh, teaching uh, is difficult enough, you know, without having um, your, your wife uh, being prepared to become the wife of your student. Uh, but uh, anyway, that was Abraham's situation. Now, Josephus tells us that according to the records that he took out of the temple just before it was destroyed in Jerusalem, uh, Abraham had taught the Egyptians what? Astronomy and mathematics. And in the Pearl of Great Price, we are told that Abraham had also taught them what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, those are the three things I hope you remember. Yes, Mike. Right. right. Uh, the, at that time, the seed of Cain were pretty much in the same position that um, the people were when Mormon at the age of about 16 or 15 received a revelation of Christ and wanted to go out and, and talk to them and teach them again and the Lord said no don't do it don't do it that'll just it'll just curse them the more they've already been taught they've already been warned they rejected my servants with their eyes wide open now don't do it again and you see at that time by the time Enoch was preaching those people had committed genocide they'd been pleaded with by about uh, nine generations no not quite that many seven generations of uh, prophets and they had so completely rejected it and indulged deeply in murder and perpetrating the secret murder cult that it would just have added flames on their heads that was the situation for that 
was Hagar an Egyptian. She was uh, of the Egyptian nationality, born and raised there, but not of the Egyptian race. She was not a Canaanite, <clears throat> and we even have some people called Canaanites that were not of the cursed, uh, restricted race. So just as Lehi calls himself uh, of Judah, was he of Judah? Really? He was from Judah, wasn't he? He was of the tribe of Joseph. What did um, Paul call himself? A Jew. But what was he really? A Benjaminite. So it's important not to confuse these things because we have two famous women coming out of Egypt as Egyptians who were Semitic. And uh, one of them was the, uh, the, the girl that Ishmael will marry that we'll find out about here in about two weeks. Uh, and that became the, uh, the line through which all the Arabs came. Now, can the Arabs hold a priesthood when they join the church? Uh, therefore, was the uh, wife of Ishmael uh, Hamitic or not? Obviously not. Couldn't have been. Now, the other famous woman, and then we have Hagar from there. We actually have uh, three women all together from Egypt. Um, our great ancestress was from down there. She was the daughter of the priest of On. And um, she was, um, her, her father was the priest that had come in with the, with the Hyksos kings, and they were all Arabs, Arab peoples. So when Joseph married her and converted her to the church, everything was in good order, no problem. She was a heathen, but she was not Hamitic. Did I see another hand? Yes. Yes. Uh, well, we assume nationality. You have to get used to that, though. We also have Hittites and uh, frequent references to the place they had come from. And it just doesn't clarify as it didn't. We have a hard time finding out about Paul. It says he was a Jew. He says himself, I am a Jew. But then he said, what he means was he came from the land of the Jews because he was actually a Benjaminite of a different tribe entirely. Yeah, the Cushites were Hamitic. Ethiopians and Cushites were the same thing. Cushite was the land, Ethiopia was the people. And um, this was before he had rejoined his people. And I, there was a great story behind that, and it's in your next book, 3,000 years, a whole thing. It's great. Hamitic peoples in Egypt. And where would the Hamitic peoples go? They go south, and then the Watusi tribe, they say they are the original Egyptians. Got a dance and everything to go with, go with it. It's their profile. They have very slender, rather large noses. They look actually Semitic almost. They're a very dignified, magnificent uh, tribe. They live high in the mountains of Ethiopia. Now, when Abraham had had a chance to teach mathematics, astronomy, and Christianity to the Egyptians, then the Lord thought it was time that the Pharaoh find out about um, Abraham's wife, this uh, uh, wonderful Sarah, actually being his wife, not just his sister. Abraham was asked to leave Egypt, and he did leave a poor man, refugee. Well, we can't tell. How, how, how old was he when he left uh, Haran? 62. How old was he when he came up out of Egypt? 75. So now we can't tell exactly how many years were spent in Egypt. Can't, you just can't tell. And you don't know how many years were spent en route. Boy, he really condenses that history just like the Book of Mormon does. Usually. It doesn't say that, but that was the custom. It wouldn't have been very long. 
You're thinking right. You, all you can do is deduct it, however. So he might have been down in Egypt for quite a long time or en route to Egypt, um, getting things all set up for qu quite a number of years, but it was just casual um, sheep herding days, and so nothing occurred worth mentioning. Now, when he came out at 75, he came up here, and um, uh, here's Jerusalem right here. Hebron is located just below. And it's about 16 miles from Jerusalem to Hebron with Bethlehem in between. And uh, that's when he and Lot had their herdsmen got into a big quarrel about what they do with their flocks. And so the lush valley of Jordan was selected by Lot as his inheritance. And uh, Abraham says, that's fine, son, that's all right, you go ahead and take it now. I'll, I'll just take care of the of the mountain country. That'll be my territory. I'll keep my flocks up in the mountain country, which is much more sparse. Boy, when you go on tour and come down those r r rugged valleys and all of a sudden come out into the city of the Palms, which is in the vicinity of Jericho, and there's the Jordan River and the Dead Sea and desolation on the other side and down in front of you, palm trees, pomegranates, cucumbers, onions, and leeks. You know, like the Bible says. All right. He hadn't been there very long before um, we had five kings come down out of this territory, and they came down and they conquered Sodom and Gomorrah, which was probably down here. We're not sure. They could have been up here, but anyway, the tar pits indicating a tremendous fire and heat is right at, at the south end of the Dead Sea. And so they think that's where Sodom and Gomorrah were. In any event, Lot got uh, he was stolen, and these five kings took all the loot and started off. And uh, that's when Abraham, with several hundred of his servants, took off, attacked them at night by surprise. And uh, if you're out on that desert, I've often thought of this situation. In your little tent, it's real dark, and all of a sudden, somebody comes in, and uh, there's a big fight. First thing you know, you're fighting anybody that's near you. And a very small force can agitate a big force into killing themselves all off. This is what Gideon did. Gideon did this with 300 men and 100,000 um, of the enemy in Jezreel Valley. He started out with 30,000. Lord said, that's too many. Got them down to 10,000. Lord said, that's too many. Got them down to 300. The Lord said, that'll be all right. So he went up, you remember, with, his, with the... Um, torches inside the pitchers and then all of a sudden they let out a big shout and a yell and went down in the camp and those people practically killed off each other in the dark so when I've been out in the desert in a tent in the dark I've visualized what this would be like anyway Abraham was completely successful and when he came back uh, he didn't want any of the um, any of the things that belonged to Sodom and Gomorrah but there there was a lot of loot that belonged to these five kings they'd been picking it up all the way across the desert and so <clears throat> he was rich already, but now he was really super rich. So he, he wanted to pay tithes of this that had suddenly come into his hands. Who, to whom did he pay it? He paid to Melchizedek. Now, many people thought that he was ordained at this time by Melchizedek, even members of the church. But we now know from his own writings, he was ordained when he was just a little fellow, very young, before he had married. So that's how we know he was quite young when he received the priesthood. All right, now, by this time, Sarah's getting very discouraged, and the Pharaoh, according to Josephus, gave her Hagar a handmaid uh, as part of the going-away gift. <laughs> Get out fast, will you? I'm embarrassed. And, and, and take this Semitic girl here named Hagar. Anyway, at some point, she gave up on the possibility of having children, 
And Hagar was a much younger woman, and so she said to her husband, Will you take her as a wife, not a concubine? Concubines thou shalt have none. Take her as a wife, and beget a son, and I will think of it as a son begotten unto me, and thou shalt have an heir. Well, a concubine was actually one that didn't have rights. It was a heathen second-grade um, consort of a kind. Sometimes there was. They could be left and abandoned. They had no rights, whatever. That's why the Book of Mormon says uh, that unless the Lord commands more than one family to be raised up, each man shall have one wife, and concubines he shall have none. It's an abomination in the sight of God. Um, now, um, she did, uh, Hagar did have a son, and uh, Abraham's now in his 86th year, you see. And this son uh, that was born was uh, named Ishmael and was his firstborn. Now, immediately the Lord says to have this little fellow what? Circumcised. And uh, does Abraham have to be circumcised? And does everybody in his camp have to be circumcised? All the males. Yes, and the Lord says, this is a covenant unto me forever between me and thee, to, to symbolize the, um, the sanctity of a certain ordinance. What ordinance? The circumcision on the eighth day of each male child was to remind parents that what should happen? That when they are eight years of age, they should be baptized. They said that ordinance is being neglected. Now, all the heathens at this time were putting marks in the flesh of their children. They would carve snakes on their backs and so forth. There was a great temptation for the people of the Lord uh, to, um, uh, you know, do a little carving. You know, I've got to have a mark. You're not, you're not anybody. You're going to have a ring in your nose or whatever they were doing at that time, a plate in your lip or, you know, whatever's fashionable, a mini skirt, whatever goes. People do it. People are strange things. And believe me, you, you can lose a son or daughter arguing over the length of hair or something. Anyway, these things really get a grab on, on a generation. And uh, so the Lord, he's realistic. He's a great psychologist. He, he knows all about us. He's been here before. He said, now I'll give you a mark in the flesh. And the mark will signify something. And that was uh, circumcision. And how long did it last? It was an ordinance unto Abraham for how long? Forever until the Lord took it away, you see. In other words, you must never take this away yourself. It's between me and thee forever, unless I take it away. You're not ever to take it away. And so when was it taken away? After the coming of Christ. Now, after what part of Christ's ministry? Oh, after his resurrection. Now, the Nephites tried to abandon the law of Moses uh, right after the birth of Christ, and they got in trouble over it, didn't they? Yeah, the prophet was told, no, 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 right on up until he has, been, has fulfilled his mission. So that's the way they did it. All right, then when we had that remarkable 89th year for Sarah, 99th year for Abraham, when we had the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we had poor Lot just barely escape, and his dear wife couldn't overcome the, her curiosity and got turned to a pillar of salt, and, they, and then they ran up into the mountains, and then the poor daughters, uh, fearful they'd never have children, and, de and indulged in a highly questionable uh, program. And uh, uh, then we, that 89th year, we had the, um, 
the angels come and visit Abraham, uh, incidental to uh, warning him about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and saying that uh, he was now going to have a child. Believe it or not, his dear Sarah was going to have a baby. She's only 89 years old. And so she's in the tent next to to her. She hears them. Here's what they say. And what does she do? And she cackles. Yeah, that's the biggest joke she ever heard. And uh, the angel said, yes, laughter. You name the child laughter. But when she did name the child laughter a year later, do you notice the reason that she gave for the laughter? It wasn't her own uh, derisive cackling that uh, gave the name. She said, this will make my husband very happy. He will be filled with laughter. I'll therefore name my little baby Isaac. But uh, the angel uh, said that, gave that name actually uh, as sort of a rebuke to Sarah for having laughed when he made the prediction. And sure enough, the forces of life came back to both Sarah and, and Abraham, uh, to Sarah, so that she could conceive. And so we had Isaac born, and we had that element of jealousy back and forth, and uh, finally... Um, uh, it was necessary for Hagar to depart in the wilderness. Was she ministered to by angels? Isn't that interesting? Now, the Mohammedans, the Islamic people, will tell you that all of this occurred down around Mecca. Now, Mecca is about a thousand miles south. And they have a black stone that they used to worship when they were idolaters. Uh, that was supposed to be a part of, the, of God's residence thrown out of the sky uh, Gabriel gave it to Abraham or something. I've kind of forgotten the details. It's the black stone, anyway, that they have in their temple. And no non-Islamic person is allowed to even go in that area, that city. But it, it would have had to have happened, you see, way, way up north, not clear down, uh, down at Mecca. And um, then we finally have that uh, terrific experience of Isaac being taken to be sacrificed. And what mountain was it? And where's Moriah located? Where's Moriah located? It's the mount on which the temple was subsequently built, which is Jerusalem. Oh, you know all these answers. I think you're going to do fine on the test.